I'm Javed Ali, executive producer of The Burn Bag, and I know our listeners haven't heard my voice since last November when I was uh, incredibly honored to host General Kenneth McKenzie, the commander of U.S. Central Command, on the show. Uh, today, on behalf of my Burn Bag partners, Andre Gunnawal and Ryan Rosenthal, I'm also incredibly excited and honored to be hosting this latest episode with Chris Costa, a really good friend, a colleague, and my former boss at the National Security Council under the first year of the Trump administration. Chris, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well, Chris. Hopefully we have brighter days uh, ahead for everyone. Um, So for our listeners who aren't familiar, Chris, with your background, let me try to sketch it out a little bit and then we'll, we'll try to dig into more with some specific questions. But for those who don't know your background, you had a long and accomplished career in intelligence, special operations and counterterrorism. Um, which culminated in 34 years or comprised 34 years in government service, the first 25 in the U.S. Army, where you retired as a colonel, uh, which included um, combat deployments uh, overseas, um, Iraq, uh, including Iraq and Afghanistan after 2001. So you certainly had the on the ground experience that's um, incredibly important for understanding this mission. And then when you retired from the Army, you held civil service positions within the U.S. special operations community. And then in early 2017, you joined the National Security Council as the special assistant to the president for combating terrorism. So both you and I uh, and a team that um, you both inherited and then built, we served, uh, or you, you and I served in the, um, in the NSC for a year. And then you departed um, the NSC in early 2018 for the next chapter in your career as executive director of the Spine Museum in Washington, D.C. And then for those of you who have not been to the Spine Museum over the last year or so, it's gone through a stunning transformation under Chris's leadership, and that includes a brand new building. Uh, It's completely redesigned and updated layout, format, and content. So Chris, um, really um, uh, exciting to see all the changes that you brought to, um, to the Spine Museum. I know I was lucky enough to get a behind the scenes tour of the museum when it first uh, got rolled out. So hopefully we can boost your membership for the museum in the coming weeks when you get back uh, to, to opening your doors. Um, and I think I can speak for Andre and Ryan and say uh, you're a great role model based on your record of government, not only your record of government service, um, but then your efforts post-government as a thought leader and an educator. So really look forward to talking about a number of issues with you today, and we're just going to dive right in. So Chris, I I briefly sketched your career arc um, in my opening remarks, but there's clearly a lot I didn't cover. So can you first tell our listeners what motivated you to join the military, how your career progressed within the Army, and then some of the biggest changes you encountered in that pre and post 9-11 world in counterterrorism? I know there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, thank you, Javed, again. Thank you, team, for for having me. It's a privilege to be able to talk to your listeners today a little bit about my background in counterterrorism. So uh, to your question, I always wanted to serve. It was just, was I going to be a Marine Corps officer? Was I going to be an Army officer? My dad served in the Marine Corps. I really wanted to follow his path. My dad went through Ranger School in 1959. Um, The path took me to the United States Army, where I was commissioned as an infantry officer, graduating from Norwich University. So I had a chance to go to Ranger School, graduate Ranger School, and then go to the 101st Airborne Division. And frankly, that was very important to me. I wanted to serve in the military. But at the same time, if I could take the listeners back 
Uh, many of them weren't even born, uh, I presume, in 1972. But in 72, I watched live the spectacularity of Munich p playing out, meaning Palestinian terrorists held Israeli athletes hostage at the Olympic Village in Munich. And that had a powerful influence on me. And somehow, some way, it really animated my interest in counterterrorism. And I didn't know how I could serve in that field, but it was a powerful reminder that there are bad actors out there. And in those days, I saw the world very, very much through the lens of black and white. Um, so after I had an opportunity to serve in the military, I was able offered opportunities to to uh, follow that career path and it took me exactly where i wanted to go although the path was was windy if you will um i saw i saw what happened in oklahoma city so i saw the result of domestic terrorism that too had a powerful impact on my thinking and i had an opportunity to go to school really on counterterrorism literally study it and teach it and this was all pre 9-11. So I had a chance to really try to understand the context of terrorism, again, prior to 9-11. But I remembered that spectacularity of the 1972 attack that had a profound effect on me. So while we were trying to sort out kind of the gray zone environment in places like Bosnia, I had an opportunity to really learn how to track bad actors, we'll just leave it at that, in places like Bosnia. And we were tracking some of the threat streams from Al-Qaeda before we understood the full dimensions of who Al-Qaeda was exactly. There were Mujahideen in Bosnia, for example, former fighters from the jihad, from the field of jihad in Afghanistan. So that, that was my introductory experience. And at that point, I was already trained as a human officer, and I was already serving in soft assignments. And in many ways, that experience in Bosnia really was a dress rehearsal for for everything that came post 9-11. So those experiences in Bosnia with special operations as an intelligence officer had a profound effect on me. And then when 9-11 happened, of course, that changed everything. That sounds cliche, but it certainly did from a counterterrorism standpoint. And I was ready. I thought I was ready uh, to, uh, to deploy and then fight our post 9-11 fight. So that's a long-winded way of saying there was a lot of experience, a lot of lumps along the way, some scarring, but it really, really offered me an opportunity to learn. And it, it started in Bosnia, as I said, and also self-study, but it also goes back to 1972. Chris, thanks for, um, for bringing up some of those points in your career. And given the fact we're such good friends, and I, I, I know your career story, very well. I want to tease this out a little bit more. Um, so you were definitely in the middle of the fight on the ground in lots of different places, both before and after 9-11, as you've described. But can you also talk about how you made what I still find to be a really interesting transition from an active duty army colonel, um, again, deep in the counterterrorism um, fight overseas, and then you retire from your military service, uh, I believe it was the uh, mid-2010 
tens and then you spent several years or perhaps earlier, but then you spent several years as a civilian in uh, the special operations um, community and in a different sort of community from once you emerged in the army. Can you share um, with our listeners how you had to navigate through that sort of career transition as well? Yeah, no, I appreciate the question, Javed. Yeah, I, I was absolutely exhausted in, in 2009. I had been offered a command to command a very unique task force that's still in existence. I was uh, selected by Lieutenant General Mulholland to stand up that command. And after two years of back and forth to the Middle East, after being back and forth, to the Middle East since 2003, I felt actualized in my military experience, and I really wanted to leave on a note as a commander. And I left the Army in 2009, and although I was exhausted after a little bit of leave, I realized that I still had a lot of fight left in me, and I still wanted to serve, and I wanted to serve with the kind of people that uh, I served with during my active duty career. And I had the opportunity to be a deputy squadron commander with the Naval Special Warfare Development Group, Navy SEALs in Virginia Beach. And that really was uh, a powerful six years for me. It was an opportunity to continue to mentor a little bit with the little M, coach with the little C, and spend a lot of time with an organization that was focused on important work overseas. So for me, it was a very, very natural transition. It was to take the experiences that I had and try to translate it and share it with as many people as that I, that I could share it with. And uh, I did that for six years. And then I had an opportunity finally to go to special operation command the headquarters and work on an important project there, uh, very deliberately on my part. And I thought really that was going to be it. And, uh, until 2016, where where when I had another opportunity that I think we're going to talk about. Yeah, Chris. So again, 30 years, literally more than or more than 30 years, in different aspects of the CT mission, um, and looking at it through multiple issues and, and multiple sort of elements engaged in in the mission. And now we're in 2016. And so, can you share with our uh, listeners how you? Um, sort of came to to connect with the Trump administration um, as it was, I guess, uh, after the election? And what were your thoughts about counterterrorism then? And, and even how did you get selected for the special assistant to the president position that you then occupied in, in January of 2017? Right. So I felt like I had gone to school with all of the folks that I had deployed with really post 9-11 from 2003, really six straight years to 2009, then another six years with Navy SEALs. In all of that learning, I felt I was prepared to do something even bigger in my mind. And I don't think that was an inflated ego. It was just this notion that I still wanted to serve. But all of that learning, I wanted to apply to counterterrorism. And in short, I had worked with Lieutenant General Flynn. I had been the chief of human intelligence for all of U.S. Central Command. And I was the chief of counterintelligence. It was dual-hatted 
And I'd come to know General Flynn. And when General Mulholland asked me to stand up a task force, I said, you're going to have to persuade General Flynn, the J2, the chief intelligence officer for CENTCOM, to let me go and stand up this task force. And General Mulholland can be very persuasive. And General Flynn and him had excellent history. Flynn knew me by reputation. I just served with him. And he thought it was more important for me to be a commander. So General Flynn trusted me to leave Central Command and go to stand up this command. So through that process, Flynn General Flynn came to know me, not just as a commander, but also as a staff officer. So in 2016, knowing that General Flynn was going to serve in the administration, literally the day that President Trump was elected to be the president, I was in Washington, D.C. I woke up in a hotel room as surprised as everyone else at the turn of the election. And that very morning, I reached out to General Flynn and said, I want to work in the administration. I want to work at the White House. And I'm not a political person. It didn't matter to me, candidly, who was the president. I wanted to serve the nation in a position where I could share some of those experiences. And that's how it started. And then I joined the presidential transition team. Nobody knew me. There are a lot of stories uh, associated with that. But at the end of the day, I paid attention. I kept my mouth closed. I offered an opinion when it was warranted. And I really, really pursued exactly what I wanted. And that is to serve in the role of special assistant to the president for counterterrorism. And that's what I told General Flynn. And that's the position I was appointed to. Yeah, Chris, that's a really interesting um, sort of observation of how you made that Transition and again, you know, sort of the underlying theme is a um, uh, you know this constant uh, desire to serve the country, which speaks volumes about your your commitment. So, so here we are. It's early 2017. You're you've been selected. Um, now you're trying to figure out how to navigate in this what I would assume is a very different landscape from the ones that you had been operating in before. So, can you? Um, share with the listeners kind of how did you try to tackle you know, different elements of this? Um, first, from the policy side, you know, what did you think were the policy priorities that um, the team needed to tackle? And, and, though, and how did that align with sort of the, the White House thinking? And then from a personnel perspective, how did you deal with um, this transition of folks who were staying over um, in that counterterrorism uh, team from uh, the Obama administration? And then what were the positions you felt you needed to sort of um, bring into the fold as you were starting to you know, put all the pieces together? So that's an excellent question. It's a loaded question. So I'll start first with the policy. So in some cases, although I had policy objectives in mind, as I paid attention to what the president had said leading up to Inauguration Day, candidly, paid attention to what the president wanted. I listened to um, seniors speak to include the Homeland Security Advisor, Tom Bosser, the designate Homeland Security Advisor, and of course, the National Security Advisor, General Flynn. While everyone was positioning themselves for what they were going to do in the new administration, I recognized there were going to be some decisions that were already made for me. And certainly that was the case. In other words, there was a continuity between administrations on things that we didn't have an option 
to not work on, like a pervasive threat. There was a significant threat to commercial aviation. I knew that we were going to ramp up on our defeat ISIS strategy. I knew that there were hostages that had to be recovered. And at the same time, very shortly after joining the administration, literally that first week, we recognized there had to be a decision made on whether there was a raid or not against Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And I had to make a recommendation on that raid. So in some cases, these were the earliest priorities. So I didn't have the luxury of walking in necessarily with, with a blueprint that I wanted to follow that wouldn't be affected by our enemies. Um, so early on, those issues really impacted the first weeks and months of the administration. That said, there were some other things that I wanted to work on. And if I could use a metaphor that I've been fond of using lately, there's a New Testament counterterrorism and there's an Old Testament counterterrorism, metaphorically speaking. And the Old Testament really is focused on counterterrorism, counterterrorism, pressure, if you will, and direct action overseas. And we recognized that we were going to have to focus on Old Testament counterterrorism strategies. We knew that we were going to have to redouble our efforts on putting pressure on the network, AQAP, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, ISIS and their affiliates, Al-Shabaab, Al-Qaeda, we knew we were going to have to put pressure on them. But all of that said, we didn't, we did not want to exclusively focus on Old Testament counterterrorism. We wanted to focus on things like countering radicalization or what was known as countering violent extremism. But what changed very quickly in my priorities is the notion that we really had to focus first on the current threat. And that current threat was ISIS. So we had to set aside some of these other ideas. As I said, New Testament, like counter-radicalization, or what was known as countering violent extremism. Those were the things that I would have preferred to focus on. But the exigence the exigency of the threats didn't allow us, as you well know, Javid, to focus on those things initially. So the priorities were really driven by the environment that we inherited. And there was a, a striking continuity between the past administration and the current administration that I was particularly proud of. So that sort of sets the stage for our priorities early on. And secondly, the second part of your question, if I understood it, was really talking about personnel and priorities and really gets into the bin of leadership. And I think it's really important to double down on some of the lessons that I, I imparted from the rest of my career, what I tried to convey early on in the administration. So what am I saying? I was relatively actualized, as I said. I was confident in my own skin at this point in my life. So I really wanted to model good behavior as I learned it from some of the mentors I had, like General Votel, General McChrystal, 
General Petraeus, bosses that I had served under. I wanted to model those behaviors in the workplace. So along with the policy priorities, what I wanted to focus on is building our team, as you well know, and that included you, Java, bringing you on board was an important early decision. And I think it was a sound and solid decision, bringing you on board, making sure that we had a team that trusted each other. And I had to demonstrate by my actions that I could be trusted as, as their new boss. And at the same time, there was this division in the, the new NSC, and some of my colleagues were very much focused on kind of ferreting out who in the administration, who in the NSC rather, you know, was aligned with the policy objectives of the new administration. I was less concerned with that, providing everyone understood that we were going to be professional and we were going to be objective and we were going to avoid politicization. And if everyone could operate with those parameters, then they were going to stay on my team. If they couldn't, as you well remember, they had an opportunity to leave. And we decided to keep our team together. And it was a choice that everyone had to make, whether they can serve in the new administration, the Trump administration. And I was confident that the team that we have that we had initially was the right team. And we had trust early on. And that was really important. Yeah, Chris, thanks for sharing insights, both on the policy side and the, the personnel side. Um, and thanks as well for, for your kind remarks about me. And again, I, I've said this to you um, several times, both publicly and privately, but for just giving me the opportunity to, to be um, with you and part of the team. One of the funny aspects of that, um, is that you and I didn't know each other, even though we had spent our careers in counterterrorism, we were in sort of different worlds, right? Yours is more uh, overseas based uh, or, you know, different aspects of the military counterterrorism world. And mine was more sort of in the Washington Intel world. And so for whatever reason, we just didn't meet. Um, and then when I was going through the um, selection process or even um, I guess initially uh, even considering it, I was trying to do some basic research about who is Chris Costa. And so at that time, certainly there was, I don't think there was really anything publicly about you. So the, but there is, for listeners who want to Google this, there actually is another Chris Costa who I thought that was you. And that person, I think, was, uh, my memory is correct, is a um, retired uh, Coast Guard officer who then, um, on retiring, was like running a tactical sort of, shooting um, business. So I thought, boy, I clearly am going to have to learn how to shoot and aim and hold a weapon properly to, to go and work uh, in the in this administration. And that wasn't the case, but that's who I thought the, the Chris Costa was initially. So um, I always get a chuckle out of remembering that part of our, you know, my initial um, part of, of going through the selection process. But as you said, it was a really powerful sort of moment for all of us trying to figure out how to navigate through these different um, spaces, but you were, you know, leading leading the team for all of us, and we all, you know, all then tried to follow in behind you. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, you served as a special assistant um, to the president for a year. We could probably spend another episode and all the the things that um, that you had to wrestle with. But what would you say, upon reflection, either then or, or now with even a little bit more hindsight, um, was your biggest accomplishment? And likewise, 
you have any regrets from the time that you were there? So I would say our biggest accomplishment was how we really set the tone for the rest of the NSC, the rest of the National Security Council. We collectively, the Counterterrorism Directorate, again, inheriting a continuity that I believed was sound and I still maintain was very sound. What we established was a no-nonsense professionalism that I inherited and we continued. So as basic as it sounds, I, I said we avoided politicizing terrorism and counterterrorism issues. We focused on a sound policy pro process. And we thought collectively that that was the greatest service we could offer, offer the president of the United States, right? Options that went through a sound process. And I ensured that our team, as you recall, understood that we might not like some of the policy options, but at the end of the day, we lay out those policy options to the president. And we understood that. And I think that was very, very important to set the tone for the rest of the NSC. You might remember we started running the first policy coordination meetings or what we call the counterterrorism security group meetings, literally in the first week. People would show up like the National Security Advisor, the Homeland Security Advisor, just to see one of our first meetings. Put a lot of pressure on me, but at the same time, we were very proud of the fact that we were going to run the policy process the way it was designed to be run. So that, was, that made me very proud how, how we set the tone in the rest of the NSC. Also, some other accomplishments of our team, we brought home a hostage held by the Haqqani Network and her children. Caitlin Coleman was held by the Haqqani Network, uh, had children while she was in custody. We validated president, presidential policy directive, bit of a tongue twister, right? PPD 30 on, on hostages. We validated that, we operationalized it. Uh, we also mitigated real terrorism threats. They didn't happen. so. For all intents and purposes, that's one of those unheralded accomplishments. We know that, that no commercial airliners went down, but we were very much concerned, as you well know, because you worked it very hard. We were very much concerned with that threat. And then I guess the last thing that made me extremely proud was the fact that that first year we operationalized what became a counterterrorism strategy that was published in 2018. So that's also a regret that I wasn't there. I wasn't leading the team when the counterterrorism strategy was published in 2018, but that's okay because it really was a credit to our collective team. You know, it's the deed is all not the glory. We kind of live by that credo. And uh, I, I think, Along with that was the regret that we weren't there, as I said, when it was published. But we know that a lot of work went into that. It was a collective team. And I regretted a little bit that also our team never seemed uh, to, uh, to get the recognition 
that I think they deserve for their work. That's why it's real important that in these kind of forums that I remind folks that that first year set the tone for the successes that came later, like the Baghdadi strike and many, many other things that uh, subsequently came along, which makes me very proud of the counterterrorism work during the administration. So I would have liked more recognition of their work, but our teammates, as you well know, really were happy uh, quietly doing their work, certainly our team. Chris, great answers on that. It'll also um, be fascinating to see as the Biden team comes in um, in a couple of weeks and they get their own sort of priorities um, and the NSC um, pointed in a certain direction, whether they'll choose to uh, tackle a new counterterrorism strategy. So build off that October, 2018 document or, and will it be more of a progression from that or a completely different um, sort of rebalancing? So we'll, uh, we'll see how that goes. And that, I guess, leads me into my next question. So um, you left government spring of 2018 or January, 2018 to take the, position at the Spy Museum. You've done great things there, but you've the entire time also had your eye on counterterrorism as it's evolving and the terrorist threat uh, along with that. So um, since you've been gone, what do you see as the biggest change since 2018? Either, again, from the counterterrorism side of how the nation is is confronting um, threats or on the threat side, what do you see as sort of the biggest change in that threat environment? So I think one of the, the, the broader issues is this idea of far-right terrorism. It's been with us. I alluded to or made reference to Oklahoma City and the circles that McVeigh traveled in, for example. That's, that was a far-right ecosystem. I am very much concerned with the far-right terrorism. That's not the appropriate term of art. I think we call it racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists. But at the end of the day, we're talking about far-right terrorism, movements that are animated by different ideologies and conspiracies. I think there is a worldwide trend of far-right terrorism, uh, not just in the United States, but it's particularly on the rise in the United States now. I use the analogy, and as I've reflected on terrorism and counterterrorism for the last few years, and I've had the luxury of doing that, uh, and the Spy Museum's been very gracious with with their flexibility so that I can attend lots of different forums, not only talking about the museum, but talk about counterterrorism policy. And as I reflected back on uh, four years, I uh, literally days before we rolled into the West Wing, literally on Inauguration Day. So four years this month, I came up with a scenario for the National Security Council to work through uh, a possible contingency that we were going to have to deal with in the first year. And ironically, it looked exactly like what played out with the attack by Sapoff in New York, a jihadist that killed eight people, I believe, on a bike path on Halloween in New York City. Um, My analogy is just as easily today, after four years of relentless work overseas, I think we could craft a scenario that has a far-right extremist taking actions into his own hand and committing acts of terrorism 
in the United States because of some kind of idiosyncratic ideology. So I'm very much concerned about domestic terrorism and having a polarized society you know, makes it a more complex environment. But I'm also very confident that the FBI and Homeland Security does a very good job on focusing their investigative work on those threat streams. But I think if what, what's changed is the, I think the frequency and the concern and the growth of that far right ecosystem. Thanks, Chris, um, for that. So on on the point uh, that you just made about this um, increase in either frequency or lethality of the far right threat, which um, I certainly would agree with and lots of other um, CT experts would, whether it's eclipsed the international terrorism threat to the United States, I mean, that's a whole other question. Um, but so as the, and I hinted at this before, but as the Biden administration is, is coming um, uh, into uh, office in a couple of weeks, how do you think that they're going to tackle that far right issue? Or do you think it'll be a bit more of a measured approach as, a, as opposed to some kind of dramatic sort of bureaucratic change similar to the kind of things that we saw in the aftermath of 9-11? Yeah, so that's a really, really interesting question. And even if it was the Trump administration, continuing another four years, I would offer the following, that we have an excellent framework for counterterrorism, certainly a strategy, right? Certainly every administration has a right to, to update a strategy. And I certainly encourage a detailed analysis and a look at the metrics and look at the measurements of, of uh, success and uh, the effects of that strategy. Assess it and uh, roll up your sleeve and look at it, but do so objectively and with the notion that continuity for counterterrorism has been one of our strengths as a nation. The counterterrorism enterprise, I believe, is a sound enterprise. As such, I think there needs to be more, more continuity with the work that's been done. However, I think that now is the time to redouble our efforts, and I already mentioned this, on Ter terrorism prevention in an architecture for terrorism prevention, not just rhetorically, but really focusing on things like off ramps, counter radicalization, not just for would be jihadists, but also for those individuals in the far right ecosystem that might be radicalizing for a different kind of attack. We need to focus on counter-radicalization off-ramps. We need to focus on education. And some of those things, I, there was some resistance on some of those things in the interagency early on, as you well remember. And we pushed really hard to ensure the 2018 strategy focused on everything from neo-Nazis to some idiosyncratic groups that some people have never heard of. I certainly didn't even hear of some of these groups operating overseas that uh, operated in kind of a, a nexus between right wing and idiosyncratic uh, ideologies. So all of that said, the administration would be well advised to assess sort of where we are after after 
20 years. And this is an ideal time to do that. But at the same time, understand that the counterterrorism enterprise has been a sound enterprise. And I very much am concerned with this idea that some individuals want to focus to, exclusively almost on this idea of global power competition, right? And I think we would do that with some risk because jihadists have not gone away. Just in the last 48 hours, and you're a news watcher as I am, Javed, what's happened? You, you look at Niger, I think there were some 100 people killed by possibly an offshoot from ISIS or an affiliate or a branch. The bottom line is the ideology is not dead. The organizations are going to ebb and flow, but they still exist. Al-Shabaab, a few years ago, we said they are just aspirational for bringing the threat to the United States shores. And, and yet an operation was disrupted in the last 60 days, reportedly, for the possibility of another commercial airliner uh, attack directed against the United States. Something we've seen before. Our adversaries are learning adversaries, and they want to uh, practice the, you know, asymmetrical warfare, meaning circumvent the United States strength. That's not going to go away. And some of these things almost seem cliche. And your listeners have heard these themes repeatedly, but that's because they're truisms in our business. All right, Chris. So wrapping up um, with one final question, and you've already touched on this a little bit in your last response, but I want to dig into it a little bit more. So um, so this September 11th of 2021, which is nine months away from now, um, will be the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, which is, it's almost hard to believe it's been 20 years for those of us old enough to remember and, and live through it. Um, I mean, I was in Washington, D.C., drove past the Pentagon literally 30 minutes before American 77 hit it. Um, and that event changed U.S. and, and world history. Um, not only now, and you know, the future consequences are still going to be unfolding, but do you think 20 years from now that the United States will still have the same strong focus on counterterrorism as these past 20 years? Or as you touched on a little bit, do you think there's the potential, despite this, this evolving and changing threat um, environment, that it will slip a l even further back from a national security a priority perspective and the competition with great power threats and cybersecurity and now pandemics and all the other things that, that we have to struggle with as a country. Well, yeah, you offer an excellent question again. And it underscores some of the themes that we talked about today. And I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about those themes. It's this idea of continuity, this idea that some have suggested that it's a terrorism trap, right? People like you, Javed, people like me, we say decrement the counterterrorism enterprise at your own risk. It's a trap, they say. We say that so that if there's an attack, we've hedged our bets. We've said do so at your own peril. But the fact remains, the threat is not going to go away because some people want to focus on other threats, like a growing China, like a Russia that's acting inimical to our interests. At the end of the day, the counterterrorism professionals that come after us will have to continue 
continue to put their foot in the door to make sure they're not locked out of meetings, to continue to remind individuals that the threats do not go away because we want them to go away. So we have to continue to educate each other on the importance of counterterrorism strategies because the threats aren't going to go away. So I would argue 20 years from now, there's there's going to be counterterrorism. There are going to be other threats that are going to be more prevalent and perhaps more dire. Cyber infrastructure threats, the threat to our environment, global warming, global pandemics. We know that these are important problems, but at the same time, threats by terrorist organizations are gonna continue because some of these strategies work. It's an asymmetric strategy as we talked about. It allows weaker adversaries to take down bigger adversaries. Just like 1972, allowed the Palestinians to ensure that the world understood their cause. And 9-11 allowed the world to understand who this Al-Qaeda is and who is bin Laden. What is this organization? What is it they want? Uh, it, took, it took the Twin Towers coming down and, and a, a, a crash in a field in Pennsylvania for the world to fully process the objectives of Al-Qaeda and bin Laden. And then ISIS came along. So these are learning adversaries. So we just have to balance out counterterrorism with other threats and understand they're going to continue at some level. 20 years from now, there's gonna be other organizations that are gonna use terrorism as a means to their end, to ensure that they can push their agenda. And there's always going to be lone wolf actors that have access to weapons that can kill individuals on a, you know, on a mass level, um, you know, mass terrorism attacks, uh, whether that's uh, explosives or something that I can't even divine at this point in the future. So I think terrorism is going to be with us. But I also believe that this enterprise are filled with with international partners that have fought this fight along with this American enterprise for counterterrorism of professionals that will pass the baton to subsequent generations and will continue to get better and better at this work. But we're going to be surprised, I think, because our adversaries have an advantage in, in choosing not only a methodology, but a time for committing a horrific terrorist act. So we just have to stay at this problem. We're a great nation. I think we can do multitasking and we can focus on global power competition as well as counterterrorism. And I'm really proud of the enterprise that I've served with. So, Well, Chris, um, thank you so much for, for spending time with us today and sharing all your insights and experiences about your career your professional accomplishments, um, and where things might even go in the future. Uh, and just as importantly, thanks for continuing to be a great friend to me and look forward to our continued strong relationship going down the road. And uh, you've definitely earned your burn bag coffee mug as a small token of appreciation for being on today's show. So we'll make sure to get that in the mail to you 
relatively soon. So Chris, thanks again for being on the show and look forward to staying in touch. Javed, thank you very much. And thank you also to Andre and, and Ryan. I really enjoy Burnbag. You guys are doing a great job. It's really important to, to educate the public in a responsible way. And you certainly do that. So thank you very much. Great. Thanks, Chris. To hear other fascinating conversations, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at Burnbag Pod. Thank you for listening. This is the Burnbag Podcast.